0: Hi, this is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations. And um, we, as always, have some very interesting and informative guests. Um, So I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, Some of them are fun, and some of them have just really important information to share. We've done about, I don't know, close to 3,000 interviews now over the years, and I think um, people tend to appreciate the the information they are getting from us. So here goes for today. Uh, I um, have with me today for our show, um, one of my very favorite people and also performers in the universe. And, and I know you've heard me say um, things pretty uh-huh. strong like that uh, before about people that I have on my show, but I, I do make a point of having people on my show that um, I really care about uh, and, and what they are doing with their lives and, and, and what they have to offer you. Um, uh, in listening to us. Um, so this is Dee Dee Bridgewater. Now, Dee Dee has hey, a lot of... Hi. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dee Dee uh, has a long history with both New Orleans and other French places, English places, German places, Russian places, God knows, she's been all over the world. <laughs> um, and she chooses to live here, It's just utterly fabulous for those of us who live here. And uh, I am going to start off um, our talk with um, why you're here, why you're here in New Orleans and, 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 and what your experience in New Orleans is all about, um, especially in relation to some of the other music cities that you've lived in. You know, the, you, you've know, you spent time in, let's say, the Memphises, the Nashvilles and so forth. So what is it about New Orleans, Didi, that um, pulls you here? Um, the the reason that I chose New Orleans to
1: be my hopefully my final uh, address on Earth um, is because of the relationship with with France because I lived half of my adult life twenty four years in Paris France and outside of Paris France um, when I was looking for a place here in in the United States to to settle. Um, New Orleans just seemed like the perfect solution. Um, I've always had wonderful times whenever I've come here. Um, uh, besides meeting you and, and Robert, um, um, I met the Pulitzers, Arthur and Sandra. And um, so you were, you four are kind of like my New Orleans family. And um, you figured in my decision to move here. I, I liked you all. And um, I liked all of the different things that you were all into. And um, I don't know. I like the, 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 the history of the city. Um, I like the connection with France. Um, I, I, I am fascinated by the fact that uh, New Orleanians are able to, to trace their, their heritage back centuries. Um, um, and um, I, I love a lot about the culture. Um, it's a difficult city to live in, in terms of making friends, but um, I've got you and,
0: and Bob and Sandra and Arthur and no, I don't need we, more. We, we have to work a little harder at, at getting you out because um, there are so many varieties of humans in this city. Oh, I know. Oh, I
1: know, no, No. and I I meant that kind of facetiously. I mean, I've made some lovely friends here. Okay, Um, uh, it's been difficult to in in some areas to make friends, but um, you know, it's I'm I'm living in the south. Um, I I grew up in the north. I'm a northern woman. I I have northern sensibilities. I have a northern big mouth. um coming from the south I'm uh, right there with you <laughs> you know so um it's 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 been an interesting interesting transition you know to come here um and to try and and walk that that thin line of of the southern hospitality and the southern way of doing things with what I am accustomed to and and uh, how I am accustomed to being treated, it's, it's been interesting. Um, but, um, you know, I'm four and a half years in now and and um, I just can't think of any place else in the United States that I would rather be.
0: And that was one of our problems at a point when New Orleans was actually going through a pretty down phase and Tannen and I really wondered about our future here. Um, we tried to say okay so where would we go and there was yeah. no there was nowhere yeah. there that we yeah, um, I can't would want to go no
1: no i i i, I really love uh, the historical factor of this city um I love the connection with jazz i'm a jazz singer um i you know this is you know we consider. New Orleans to be the birthplace of jazz, and um, I, I can't. I just can't. I can't find another another place. Um, I don't want to go back north. Um, I do prefer the honesty of people in the South. I do prefer in the South that they are in the South. I prefer people saying to me how they really feel, and instead you of that
0: more so in sugarcoating the South. it.
1: Oh, I find it more so in my dealings. That's I so interesting. In my specific that, dealings. Really? Mm-hmm.
0: I just don't mm-hmm. see it the other way around, that, uh, that Northerners to me are more straightforward and honest than New Orleanians. I mean, than Southerners, because New Orleanians and Southerners, that's not the same thing there's two different yes there's two yeah, different animals it's different. <laughs> yeah um you know my
1: experiences as a black woman um in the united states of america have always been uh that the uh, white people that i encountered once i i crossed the mason dixon line once i was in the south those white people were much more forthcoming mm-hmm. and and honest about how they felt than my counter, the counterparts in the in the north
0: Wow.
1: Um, So that's me. And a lot of my Black friends, when we speak about the North and the South, this is the thing that we speak about. I say that I would rather have, I would rather have, um, uh I lost my AirPod, but I would rather have people be honest with me about their feelings about me as a Black person than try and sugarcoat it and act like everything is okay when behind my back it is not.
0: I have heard that point of view expressed um, by others as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, and, uh, as a matter of fact, a a woman who works with me across the table almost every day was saying that her father Mm -hmm. preferred having um, somebody uh, be more, uh, express themselves more cautiously and mother was the opposite. I want to hear it, and um, it was it's two different points of view within one family. But um, and 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 my associate was saying she would she wants she wants to hear it. She wants to she wants to know it. She doesn't want that um, sense of uh, being nice, but really underneath it is a whole other level. Um, you know, I've had situations
1: here, Jean, um, which are my personal situations, but I've had situations where I have been invited to someone's home that I don't know and um, go to that home and um, have had encounters with individual, individuals who were also invited who were extremely racist and said very racist things to me, which I responded to and which upset the offender, because they couldn't believe that I would retaliate. And of course, all of these people were male figures. And uh, then I had the situation where the person who had invited me has, has either come to my defense or I've had to go to them and say, listen, I don't wanna deal with this, I'm leaving. And this is what happened. So, um, and it's, it's been very interesting because in each of these situations they've been very cut and dry. It's been very, very fascinating for me. Um, I've had you know people be next to me and just be in utter disbelief and shock. It's all over their faces. And then I go, please, you deal with this bullshit all the time. So don't look like this is your first time hearing that person say something offensive to a black person who happens to be standing next to you. So those have been my experiences. But then also the thing has been in all of these situations, the person who said the offensive thing was not prepared to get a comeback from the offended person. And so they have always been shocked. I mean, utter disbelief. Uh, they have all usually left, <laughs> you know, the situation. Um, but that's, Can that's you give me and one... then there's
0: just been the people around me that are the collateral. Can you give mm-hmm. me just you want one... an example? Yeah, one specific example. Sure. You don't have to name the person, but just uh, the, the uh... Oh, I don't
1: even know the person's
0: name. Okay. I went to right. hear
1: so, uh, the conversations who were performing in, in in the backyard of a woman who hosted uh, these musicians. And um, I had my dog. I have an emotional support dog. And so I had my dog with me. And um, towards the end of this afternoon, a gentleman who had been looking at me and looking at me every time I would look up in the direction of the musicians, he was in that same eye off sight and he would be staring at me. And so finally he came over. Of course I was dressed very well because I make it a point when I go out in the South, when I go out, I go out dressed. Uh, You've never seen me out, not dressed. OK, because I want people to understand that I come from a certain level and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on a certain level. You can look at me and from the image that I project, you got you've got a story. So I was dressed very nicely. Of course, I was dressed better than anybody else that was there because everybody was dressed in jeans or shorts. It was summertime. And um, so at any rate, this gentleman comes over and he wants to pet my dog. Well, this was also at the beginning of the pandemic. This was at the time when they were saying they were not sure if. The uh, virus could be transmitted. If you petted a a, a person's animal, If it could be transmitted that way. So there was all this confusion going on. And so I didn't want anybody petting my dog. And certainly not someone who I did not know at all. So the man asked if he could pet the dog. I said, no, you may not pet my dog. He says, well, I'm not going to bite the dog or anything. I just want to pet it. I said, I understand, sir. I understand you want to pet my dog. I said, let me rephrase it. You would like to pet my dog. So now, do you understand that I understand what you asked me? He says, okay, yes, I do. I said, and my response to you the first time and now the second time is, no, you may not pet my dog. And he turned red. Of course, the individual was white. He turned red. I saw him going from light to it was getting dark. And I said, oh, boy, he is pissed now. And there were only women around us. And so he starts to walk away. He stands there as he's getting ready, he starts to walk away. And then he turns back around and he says, I think I saw your dog two weeks ago. I said, I don't think you saw my dog two weeks ago. You would have seen me with the dog. Oh, I'm pretty sure I saw your dog two weeks ago at a correctional facility. Oh, I saw At a correctional God. facility. I said, oh, really? He says, oh, yeah. I, oh, I'm pretty God. sure I saw your dog and you. And I said to him, and you may go and blank yourself (laughs) and for that I took my mask off because we were both masked and I took my mask off and I said and you may go blank yourself and he goes what did you say to me and I said you heard exactly what I said do you want me to repeat it and he just turned around and I went back and I collected all of my stuff and I
0: left So I've I've encountered um, not anything nearly like that, but as being a woman and being from the North, um, I've had my experiences as well. Not in the, not nearly anything like that. Let's talk about the music business because the music business has been your source of, uh, it. you thrive in it, uh, but it has to have been also a very challenging uh, industry over the years to work in. Um, maybe not uh, yeah. as much as maybe some others, but um, I, uh, the reason I, I wanted to talk with you about your history at a, a, during the month of Black History Month is because generally we focus in Black History Month on uh, wonderful stories about how the wonderful things that Black people have done um, and sort of bringing that story out that is not, does not get enough attention, but but I, I wanted to hear a different kind of history. I wanted to hear about um, your, your personal history and how you grew in your business and how you dealt with the challenges and the opportunities.
1: Well, um, you know, first of all, being a, a female, um, a black female in, in the music industry is already a handicap. Um, I, um, I would say that, um, where I am concerned, the thing that has separated me is that, um, I have never been afraid to stand alone. I have never been afraid to be the only person in the room to, to express my feelings a a certain way and not have anybody else feel the same way as me. So I've, 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 you know... I think it started um, as a child. My mother put my sister and I in Catholic school when um, my sister was was five or six and, and I was seven, seven or eight. And um, we were the only kids in, in our whole black little community where we lived to be going to a Catholic school and there, therefore had a totally different school system that we, we followed. So um, I had one set of friends that I had to, that I made at the school that I was going to, and then I had my friends that lived in the neighborhood. Um, so my friends at school were for the most part, part white kids and I only saw them at school. I was never invited to their homes. Um, mm-hmm. that, that just went without saying. Um, I was the kid that w- they were fascinated with because my palms of my hands are supposedly white. And but they have the brown lines going through them and then the back of my hand and you can see the difference on the sides. So I had to deal with that kind of stuff when I was seven years old. So I learned you know, from a very young age how to, uh, how to carry myself, how to defend myself. I, I was the, 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 the girl that got in fights with, with the boys. I was a tomboy. Um, I was always defending my sister who's two years younger than me and beating up the boys in the neighborhood um, so I, I kind of grew up without a fear of men, at least men my age. Um, and it's something that has carried over into my adult life. Um, I don't care how big you are, I, I'm not afraid. I'm just afraid, I don't know, something I'm not just not joined well in my brain. Um, but um, I've never been afraid of anyone because of their size. Um, and my way of fighting people uh, has grown to be one of, of using a, a language, using, you know, verbal usage and, and not physical usage. Um, and so I applied that, you know, to, to the music industry. You know, when I started out in the music industry, once again, I was the only woman among many, many men. I started out with a big band called the Thad jones Lewis Orchestra. And so they were 18 people in that orchestra plus their road manager, 19. So there's 19 men and me, and Dee And I had to ride the bus with these gentlemen. I was with them when we would leave to go on, on tours and we would leave from the Village Vanguard Jazz Club in New York City. On the bus, and the women would all be waving goodbye, and they would all be saying to me, "I'm 20, 21, 22. What am I gonna do with their husbands? Would you please keep your eye, uh, you know, on my husband?" I'd be like, "Yeah, okay, whatever." And then I would see all of these men. Um, we would get to the different cities, and they'd all have ladies waiting for them. And the same when we go on tour. And then it just became the thing that I would see all the time. Men, whenever I would be in their company um, as, as a musician. They all had other people, other women that they dealt with once they left home. So I had to deal with this whole thing of infidelity from the time that I started in the industry. Mm. And so of course it colored how I looked at my relationship with you know my first husband Cecil Bridgewater and that was a strange marriage. People still think that I'm his sister. Um, people always thought I was his sister and he would never correct people it was very strange. Um, but um, you, when you have that kind of information, um, it's going to spill over into how you do your business. And so um, once again, as the business person, you know, I started out, you know, booking myself. I, I always had to defend myself. So I, as an artist, I had to defend myself how I wanted to be treated as an artist, what I expected from promoters when they would hire me, or if a booking agent was going to rep me, I had to instruct them how I wanted them to behave for my particular shows. And so I have always been that standalone. I never would get any kind of information from another female with the exception of Betty Carter and then Abby Lincoln. Those were the two women who gave me information. About how they dealt with their business and and how they thought I should deal as a business person, um, and they were two very independent women. You know, I I say that I model my career off of Betty Carter's career. Mm. Um, you know, Betty Carter was the first woman that I knew that um, produced her own albums. You know, put them together, distributed her own her own albums. I mean. She had Betcar Productions back in the, in the seventies. You know, she was, she had her, she got her albums pressed. She packaged them. She mailed them out. She did everything, you know, besides running her band. She was the first woman that I ever saw really be a band leader um, and really, you know, instruct every musician from the time that she got on the stage until she got off the stage. And then the next person that I saw do that was Abby Lincoln. So I have these two very strong women who are kind of my pillar of my post and they are who I tried to model my career after. I, I stand alone today. There are very few jazz vocalists who own all their masters, have their own small label, you know, produce their records. Um, you know, and I you have distribution your, deals.
0: And, and, and you protected your intellectual rights no doubt, which yes, is something that of course. a lot of New Orleans musicians complain about how other people deal with them. But in in many cases, it seems like the bottom line is that they did not take care of their intellectual rights. Correct. And that
1: is an issue. And that but that's an issue that's that goes outside of New Orleans. That's yeah, I'm sure. just around it's around the world. It's around yeah. our country for sure. Um, you know, and you have situations where um, I was just never alone, uh, afraid to, to, to be alone and to, to miss something because I always felt like there was gonna be something that would come along behind it. For example, I, I refused to, to uh, have a sexual relationship with a gentleman who was very powerful in the jazz world, had several huge jazz uh, festivals. Uh, was doing jazz tours and it was just great to be on his train. And he asked me to, to be his mistress and I said, no. And he says, well, then you will not do my festivals. And I said, oh, well, I guess I won't do your festivals. And to this day I have not done his festivals but it didn't stop my career, you know? And so then people that do those festivals or that run those festivals, now they're coming to me and say, why haven't you ever done it? And I said, oh, <laughs> you know, I refuse to do da, 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 da. And they're going, what? I'm like, yes. So that's why I haven't done your festival.
0: You know that actually brings up a subject that is not necessarily at the heart of our discussion. But um, with all of this Me Too movement that's been going mm-hmm. on, um, and I listen to the stories of women who went to, let's say, Harvey Weinstein's um, hotel room. I mean, I've yeah. been invited to a few hotel rooms, and uh, I say um, no. Yeah, I'm trying to understand what were they expecting. And, and and I don't
1: you know I don't yeah I don't know I I it's, it's to me it's like it's just privilege it's like these gr- I don't know what the I don't know what they're expecting, you know. I but, just think you that know, there is there
0: is as much to blame. Quite frankly, I am in. I am in
1: agreement. I'm in. ai am 100 yeah. in agreement.
0: And they probably you know, every situation you is a two way street. Well, I'm I, sorry, I really,
1: and I I said it's a two way street. Yeah. Yeah. And I really don't care if you agree with me or not. I don't care. That is not my problem because I have resolved my situation. So these young girls who feel like, oh my God, oh, and then I just had to do it. B.S. That's B.S. I'm sorry. You do only what you want to do when you want to do it. Yeah.
0: I'm sorry. I have a memory from childhood uh, in the South Bronx when Mm -hmm. a man came to my apartment who said he was some kind of um, inspector of stoves or some nonsense. I let him in because I was, I think, eleven or something, mm-hmm. um, and then he wanted to sit down next to me on the couch.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so I said, um, "You've got to leave now. <laughs> you know, it, this isn't right." I mean, I'd never been told about an experience like that. My mother didn't sort of give me instructions of a guy comes to your apartment, blah blah blah. No, I just said, oh, "Oh no, this is not. This is not right. I don't want to do this. Get out of here." And and and. I honestly have to say, in my entire life, there may have been circumstances where I was a little bit too um, partying, uh, where things happened that maybe I should have chosen them not to. But I never felt in my entire life that I was forced to do something I didn't want to do because I just didn't do it. Yes, and unless so you far were, far unless, unless, unless it was forcibly done,
1: and then we call that rape.
0: Yeah, I have I've just you never an experienced anything like that because the one I can think of only one time and it was here in New Orleans as somebody again from the music business actually um, was attempting to force himself on me and I just physically had to you know push him out of the way and I did I mean I just I I, I don't what about the business side of um, growing your persona your 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 music content and style. Um, tell me a little bit more about how that evolved. Um, and I can I can hear, you know, already when you say you were impressed with the business side of how Betty Carter managed yeah. her career, but what about the music side? The, the um, exactly the kind of singer you became, the kind of performer you became? Because you are a certain kind of performer. You're not just a singer. You are in fact a performer when you're on stage That is a very powerful presence and narrative and and approach. And I want to know more about that. I, I,
1: I took my musical cue from Miles Davis. I thought if Miles Davis can put out albums and every album is completely unique and different from the precedent, has nothing to do with the next one, it's its own entity, it's its own baby, and if Miles Davis can dress the way he dresses, and if Miles Davis can turn his back to the audience, which he told me why he did that, but if he can do all of those things, then why can't I? Why can't I? So I decided I'm going to, every album I do is going to be different because if we don't push ourselves as artists, and the only way that you can see you being the consumer can see if me, the artist is pushing themselves is through the presentations that I, I, I put out, the albums. So I wanted to constantly be exploring my art musically and that was the way that I did it. So if I was curious about a particular music or curious about a particular composer, whatever it was, I would go a hundred percent in and I would do that thing and I would carry it through from the time that I had the idea to do it all the way up through the execution of, of, of doing the album to its being out to supporting it on tour until, you know, I felt I'd squeezed every bit of juice from that lemon as I could. And um, so I, I, I got this reputation as, as being this kind of an individual. We never know what Dee Dee Bridgewater is gonna do, but we know it's going to be good. And that was that was that was and still is my reputation. Um, because whatever it was that I, I decided to do no matter what it is I'm doing, I have to do it 100%. Otherwise, I need to leave it alone. So I've I've tried to always apply that to everything that I do, whether it's it's in my recording or in my performance, if I'm going to perform I am going to perform. I'm going to give you 200%. I am every bit as good as any of these pop singers out there. The only thing I don't have is all that money to give you the whole production. But I feel that the individual, my persona can give you the same kind of production value without all having all of that other stimuli. and and. Actually, could make me the better performer because if I had all of that stimuli, holy cow, I don't know what I'd be. (laughs) You you know? Um, But I think the thing, Gene, is that. All of us have our idea about who we are and how we want to be perceived and how we want to project ourselves. It's just you know some people can take it further than other people. Some people have have opportunities that other people don't have. There are a lot of things that go into how far forward you can push. You know this what we now today call this brand. You know I well, certainly would not-
0: have. I tend to um, I tend to think that it has a lot to do with intentionality
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, so you know what I think about when you said that about how you were um, a, a determined to be who you are and I was thinking that I, I don't have that same um, instinct I kind of I'm not really in total control of who I am I'm kind of like you in the sense that you, you can't push me very easily and I'm going to resist and I'm going to say what I think but uh, I'm not. I don't think it's quite as intentional as that. Um, but I want to ask you um, as 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 who you are that you just described. That is also a description of somebody who was not raised in New Orleans, because oh, in my well, because we have a different point of view about uh, whether people are honest or not in New Orleans as compared with other places, and and um. I remember telling people when I first came here that women here either wore white gloves or walked the street, that there was a a real um, disadvantage more so than I was, um, more than how I grew up to being a woman. And um, I found it really kind of challenging when I first got here, it still is. I mean, I'm just very much, I don't think about being a woman, I just think about being a person, I think about being me. And so um, that doesn't always go over that well, just as you were describing your your experiences you had. But how has working in New Orleans, so one of the questions we actually ask people as we do our surveys for our discussion about the creative industries here, and New Orleans is a place to work as compared with other places, how, how, how does working in New Orleans for you compare with working in other places? I don't really work in New Orleans.
1: You know, it's only since the pandemic, really, that, that I've done what I've done here. And my, my involvement has been in working in New Orleans. It's just been working at the New Orleans Jazz Museum, uh, doing their gala two years in a row, um, accepting to be a part of the Danny Barker Banjo and Guitar Festival with um, Detroit Brooks Sr. Um, And, you know, I mean, well, I I did do the album, uh, Dee Dee's Feathers with Urban Mayfield and and the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra. And that's kind of really what started my really coming to New Orleans and, and being involved with New Orleans. But those were all specific moments. I don't really consider myself someone that, that works here. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't really know. I only know my individual circumstances around those business dealings. And, um, you know,
0: And they're shaped by your stance yeah, I have, as a businesswoman yeah. then by the city. It's not, um, yeah, it's not at all. It's
1: not at all uh, based through the city, by the city.
0: Where, where is your um, music genre and move, um, if I can use that word, um, going uh, in the future? I have
1: no idea, Jean. I have no idea. I yeah. really don't. I, I have to say that I was really impressed when I did the Danny Barker Banjo and, and Guitar Festival with um, a song that they asked me to do, uh, it was a Danny Barker composition that he had written for his wife, Blue Lou Barker. And it's called, Don't, Don't You Feel My Leg? And I, I just, I loved it. I love performing it. I love the band, the band uh, that was assembled for this festival. They're all musicians who were either taught by Danny Barker or mentored by Danny Barker had worked with Danny Barker. So Danny Barker was the theme. I didn't even know who Danny Barker was. Now I have a small knowledge of who he is, but I was uh, gifted with a, a table book on him that he wrote that I, I am going to read because that has piqued my interest in uh, the music that was done at the time that Don't You Feel My Leg was put out. And that was when uh, all across the United States we had what were called race records. You know, we had to do this risque music uh, because this was what we was were told, you know, we, need, we had to do. So I thought, wouldn't this be something interesting to, to pursue and to, to look into is the history of New Orleans female singers during that period who did make maybe do some recordings that were of risqué songs and um and then it would satisfy a desire that I've always had to be a burlesque dancer and uh you know I figured you know now that I've crossed 70 I can just let her rip I can do whatever I want to do so that's kind of that's a project that I am actually um working on, I'm, I'm talking with uh, Dr. Michael White and um, getting ready to reach out to some other people and, and start you know putting together some, some notes on this and, and selecting some songs. And so I, I think I'm gonna do uh, that as a project. Um, I think it would be a good thing for me as an established jazz singer to show how I am embracing the New Orleans culture um, and as I have always been considered, in spite of all of the music that I do, you know, I am the, the, uh, the, the, the carrier of the torch of the traditional jazz singer, you know, a la Ella Fitzgerald or, you know, Billie Holiday or Sarah Vaughn, you know, all of, all of those great women on whose shoulders I stand. And then you throw in the Betty Carters and the Abby Lincolns and they were the kind of renegades and, and I'm all of that. And so um, I think it would be good for me to honor uh, some of the New Orleans tradition and uh, to show that internationally. Um, I'm also interested in uh, doing another project of my Memphis Yes, I'm Ready because that I really and truly loved. And that music saved my life right after my mom had died. That was the music that helped to heal me and, and to, to buoy me. And, uh, and I think I found another part of me in doing that music because it was a secret music that I'd always loved and I'd always dreamed about doing. So um, there's a possibility that we're gonna do a follow-up album of, of that music. Um, and then I have Abby Lincoln, who I promised when, uh, before she passed that I would do an album of her music.
0: Oh, wow. And
1: I think it's time that I do that as well.
0: Dee Dee Bridgewater, one of the, now you know more, and I actually know more, I've learned a <laughs> lot in this conversation about this uh, very unique and, and special person. And we're extremely grateful that she has chosen to hang around um, as my husband calls it, the little difficult. Oh, I love it,
1: the little difficult. Oh, I love it.
0: I <laughs> we'll love visit it. some more, Dee Dee. Yes. You too, care.
1: Oh, thank you. Have a, have a enjoy little bit of
0: fun and a nice um, uh, Mardi Gras and uh, pass by the front of our house if you can at some point. We've got a great big oh, did you do a nice balcony, and we'll have a little porch visit. Okay. That sounds great. Take
1: care. Okay, you too. Thanks, Jean. <laughs>
0: Am I, am I so I'm here with two guys who figured out how to do something pretty cool for pivoting for um, this pandemic situation with Mardi Gras us and, and all the limitations on both their, um, their venues and what they do. So Will Samuels, who's the uh, famous, or should I say infamous, King Cake hub guy, <laughs> and uh brian knighton who uh, i've known for too long already it hasn't been that long but long enough and um he runs the broad theater which i love him for because it is my neighborhood theater and um there's nothing i love more than having a neighborhood theater instead of having to haul behind out to the suburbs to see a movie which really used to pee me off big time so Um, These two guys got together, so Broad Theatre and Show Films, um, because of the pandemic, and um, Will, I'm not sure why you decided to uh, come over to the Broad, but you're about to tell me that, Uh, so um, Brian said, hey, King Cake Hub, do your thing here at the theatre, is that sort of how it went, or you you guys tell me?
2: Something like that, we were, this was in December, and we found out that the mortuary, couldn't commit to us for this season because of scheduling conflicts. They were kind of messed up during, during Halloween. They're well, actually of all of last year. They couldn't do the activities that they were going to do. And so they were counting on October and all of their Halloween festivities at the haunted house. Uh, and then they got shut down, not only with COVID, but because of two hurricanes during October. So they were counting on that month. And they with the hurricanes, they they weren't able to do what they were wanting to do. So they were focusing on a psycho-asylum Christmas uh, special, like a haunted Santa, zombie escape, uh, really intense little Christmas programming. And they couldn't commit to us to have us here uh, to have us uh, for, for Carnival. So we were looking around, looking for a different venue, and we wanted to stay in Mid-City. And my wife and I were driving around looking for possible spots to be located. We are like, oh, man, Brown would be great if we could do it. But they're like, oh, well, they're, they're too busy. They've got everything going on we get home we're looking at facebook and then we see the post that brian had done on facebook saying that the broad was temporarily closing they were like oh wow so immediately i sent a message saying hey i've got a crazy idea came in the next day talked to brian said hey let's ponder this uh situation here and he was like yeah i'm in and uh, it worked out great we're so so happy to be here it's really a perfect partnership
0: well i've already been there too many times i've already bought too many cakes i bought three king cakes uh, one raspberry and uh, cream cheese one strawberry and cream cheese and one french style from gracious bakery and um uh, two uh, one of them is half eaten and i gave the other half to one of my employees and um We've uh, decimated the French one in about 48 hours. So I don't know. I have a feeling I'm going to be back again. But what a great idea. I love it. And Brian, you must be thrilled to have activity in there at a time when you might otherwise have been dark.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, as soon as Will came over, and I've known Will for a while, uh, I said, of course, you know, yeah, it definitely sounds like a great idea. But, you know, quite honestly, like you said, it's it's nice to have activity. It was a very, very sad scene when there's no one in here. And you know that, you know, we built this theater that I love and that customers love and it's just desolate and empty. And it's a very depressing place. So it is nice to have uh, folks coming in and out and everyone's happy buying cake. So it's, uh, it, it is good. It's a mutually, very mutually beneficial relationship.
0: And even though the lines are determined in part by um, the uh, social distancing, it's nice to see a line outside. And see yeah, right. people. Right. You know? right. And right. I love the diversity. I mean, that's one of the hallmarks of your theater is that it's in a very diverse area. So your crowds are diverse and that was kind of a pleasure to see as well. Mm-hmm. But um, Will, you've been doing this hub thing now for a while and I only discovered it, I think it was last year it was my first time. And um, I was like astonished, what a brilliant idea. Tell me how that came about. Well, we
2: started baking king cakes but we had La Dolce Nola, a gelato shop. This was uh, 10 years ago, I think it was our first season baking king cakes. My wife had developed a recipe and we had a pretty popular cake for a while. A lot of people said it was the closest thing to the original McKenzie's. Uh, and then the uh, uh, we closed the gelato shop. We had Pizzanola. I was baking king cakes for, from, uh, we were in a commissary kitchen uh, it was a, a super long season and we were baking still a little king cake, selling in Pizzanola and a few other places. And then we stumbled across another king cake that we carried for several years at Pizzanola. Uh, and then when things kind of went south with that, uh, when we closed Pizzanola, Gambinos had reached out to us and said, hey, we can get you however many king cakes that you want. We would love to work with you. And then just kind of the, the seed started germinating from there. We had always wanted to work with Heidel Bakery. We brought them on board. We brought Bywater on board pretty quickly. Uh, and then 2019, we launched at the mortuary with, uh, I think it was like eight bakeries, and maybe 30 varieties of cakes um, for our first season. We expanded to 12 bakeries and about 50 plus varieties last year. And wow. then now we've kind of lost count with uh, 16 bakeries, 65 different varieties of cakes, but it's been incredible here for a third season. We've, we've really been enjoying it here.
0: Well, the setup is perfect. I mean it really is spacious, it's roomy. you've got those racks and the racks work and I mean uh, it, it it really does exactly what Brian was say uh, saying bring life to it. Now, Brian, I was of course, as you know, thrilled when Southern Marine, which sat there empty for decades, I think, and I kept thinking. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to do a jazz club in there someday. I'm going to make that a real comfy adults kind of uh, living room's thing inside and make a jazz club out of it. And then you came along and said theater and I said, "Yes." Where did where did your impetus to do that come from? I mean, you you weren't doing um a movie theater before this. You were doing I don't know what. I I remembered you primarily with arts education.
3: Uh, that's right. Uh, I it's a very long story, Gene. I don't know how long your show is.
0: <laughs> not that long. Not, not that, that long. The, show, the short
3: version is. Oh, you my I I was at uh, Katie's restaurant in Mid City in 1999, and uh, I was sitting next to a couple who were they were talking about movie pictures. You know, on Bienville, oh, uh, yeah. closing, and I went the next day and spoke to the owner about trying to keep it open, and he basically gave me the keys and said, "If you can keep <laughs> it open, it's yours." Because you know, there was that there was that weird lease deal with Save a Center, I think it was, and they lost their lease, and so I took them to court. Uh, we lost in court, um, and they 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 basically were forced out. So ever since 1999, I had the idea. And I actually bought the, oh, the wow. URL for moviepictures.com in 1999 or whenever it was. And still to this day, moviepictures.com redirects to the broadside, no, to the broad oh. theater. Yeah, oh, so I that's the no long idea. story.
0: I had no idea it went back that far. Wow. Yeah. But this definitely. is kind of the fulfillment of a dream.
3: Yeah. So I tried forever and nobody would give I was, th- I think I was 24 or 25 at the time, and no one would give me the million dollars it takes to rebuild a theater. Um, and then finally, I was able to get the loan. Um, I don't know, what's uh, for when I was 40, 39, 40. Yeah. Wow. And
0: here that's, we are. Um, that, that, that's a lot of uh, patience and holding on to a dream. Yeah. But uh, people who are dreamers tend to hold on to those dreams. So right. I, no. I, I kind of get it. For better
3: um, or for worse.
0: Let's, let's talk about <laughs> what folks can uh, expect and experience coming to the theater where the King Cake Hub is set up and also your broadside, you have uh, moved outside with your uh, film uh, showing at the moment. Um, So between now, especially in Mardi Gras, when we're all kind of like, um, what are we doing? So I, by the way, I hung a 13 foot fish, a marlin that my husband made out of a a material I can never remember in front of our house Uh, kind of like a trophy over a fireplace and the message is that if we don't watch out we'll have marlin swimming here pretty soon so it's an environmental message at the same time that it's a fun thing and at night it's really great to see lit up so i got into the swimmer thing so to speak Um, and but you guys certainly did so so if if somebody comes to the broad for the king cake hub give us a little flavor please will of what people can expect all right. Well, behind me,
2: as you can see, we have uh, the lobby here at the theater. And we have the so, racks filled with 16 different bakeries, 65 different varieties of king cake, give or take. A um, couple of new things in the fridge. We've got uh, brand new uh, praline clean stuffed pretzels from GW Finns. We have now food from Napoleon House, a really good seafood gumbo. We have a Mardi Gras parade pack with red beans and rice and a muffled kit. The idea being everything you need to be able to celebrate carnival at home with the food, with the King Cakes, and being able to partner with the Broad Theater, with the Broadside for the event that they're doing. Uh, It's been a a, 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 a partnership. So everything you need. So what's great is that, you know, I've been over there at Broadside and folks have been sitting there eating King Cakes that they had just gotten from here. What we're trying to be is really, we could be the epicenter of carnival festivities for this year, especially with Cluster Peel being two blocks away, um, the Zulu Den, and I think, I think today they're selling the Zulu bobbleheads, I think I saw. So what you have here in Mid-City is really, the, the, the hopefully, ground zero for, for this year's carnival celebration.
0: Fantastic. Okay, deal. broadside. Um, let's let's uh, explain broadside. I haven't been there yet, Brian. I have to. Oh, come there. on, Gene. And I'm only blocks away from you. I, I work too much. You know, I just work too much. I got to get <laughs> over there. But tell me, tell me again. And tell me about broadside. What to expect? and Tell me what's on for now for uh, pre Gras. Uh,
3: pre Gras, tonight we have. Um, well, actually, tonight we're doing a trivia. We've been doing trivia on Tuesday nights with our- Oh, um,
0: I'm sorry. I have to warn you. This show is going to air on Friday.
3: Oh, well- um,
0: We better talk about- after Yeah. <laughs>
3: after, we we had a wonderful lineup of shows, and Will said he had tickets to our some of our Mardi Gras concerts. We had Big Frida, Tank in the Banga, Sweet Crude, uh, Wild Magnolias. <laughs> you, bangles, uh, we favorite. had wonderful, wonderful oh, stuff. God but that's all been canceled. Uh, yeah. But you know, going forward, we have uh, Big Sam's Funky Nation. We have Russell Baptiste, um, The Lost by Your Ramblers, Luis Machat. Um, we have a ton of stuff, a ton of great, great programming. And
0: So how does that work? Uh, what are the hours and, and how do people access and what's the cost and you know, give me the details. Yeah,
3: it's everything's on broadsidenola.com. You can get there from the Broad Theater's website. Um, but we're, we're, we're seating between 125 and 150 people. We have actual seats that are physically distant. Uh, they're, they're situated on rugs. So you know exactly where you are. We have six foot walkways. We have six feet between each chair, um, well, between each pod. We have a full bar. We have some food. We have food pop-ups coming in and out all the time. And we've been doing a lot more music than we have uh, movies. And it could just be because of the weather, but, you know, folks weren't really coming out to see movies as much as they were for the music. So we've basically yeah. been doing music from Wednesday through Sunday. And uh, every Wednesday night we've been doing a, a series called Scatter Jazz, which has been around for a long time. Uh, and a, a gentleman named Andy, he has been pulling together fantastic uh, jazz artists uh, every Wednesday at seven o'clock. Um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, just a, a, a big mix. We utilize the space all day. On Saturday and Sunday, all day. So we'll have three concerts on Saturday and Sunday.
0: Wow! So Brian, it sounds like I'm sorry. uh, Will one second? That there was a really
2: fun uh, the the the, the arts market that y'all had uh, a couple weeks uh, on a Sunday afternoon. It was perfect weather. A great band that was playing. uh, Food pop ups. It was it was so much fun just to be able to hang out and have a socially distant venue
0: uh, to be able to hang out in. Yeah. Well, surely was, they're going to let you come back up soon. So the, the, the question I was going to ask is is this, I, I feel like this is going to be a long-term thing. I mean, why not just keep it going, right?
3: No, 100%. I've been uh, on the phone all morning with my architect telling him to speed it up. <laughs> because right now everything's temporary. We have a temporary bar. We have temporary restrooms, a temporary ticket you know, counter. So we, no, we're, the plan is to keep the outdoor venue. And the city just went through Um, I don't know if you you guys are aware, but they just went through the whole city council or planning commission hearing on outdoor music venues. And because we are in the Greenway uh, in the Lafitte Greenway corridor, we are able to have uh, outdoor music uh, and outdoor events. So it's it's really great. And I think being so close to the Greenway, it's going to just be another uh, growth opportunity uh, and excitement uh, of what's happening in, in mid city.
0: Well, I'm paying a lot of attention to that live music um, so-called study uh, because oh I'm God. extremely in favor of live music in uh, throughout the city dispersed in the neighborhoods and being able to attract visitors and residents um, into the neighborhoods around. but I am extremely opposed to music um, in locations that are uh, buried deep in residential neighborhoods. Where yeah, correct. Basically destroying the lifestyle of the people who live next to you. And I live in between two venues that are um, museums, but they have a lot of weddings and parties and some of them are just wonderful. And some of them, uh, I kind of want to, um, you know, pray for a hurricane. So um, I, um, I'm, I, I think that choosing the right locations for live music around the city is extremely important. And your location is perfection. And that kind of a location is what I hope to see a lot more of. Well, what about you? What's the next up for you after Mardi Gras? <laughs> take a rest.
3: <laughs> 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 He's going to Mexico.
0: <laughs> yeah, I gotta take, I gotta take a little rest
2: for a little while. No, it's been, a, it's been a fantastic season. And there have been some developments that we've been trying to implement for this year. Um, they, that i think that what we've seen is a paradigm shift in carnival uh with even if parades are back next year and we've been doing a lot of thinking of we've had a great season here at the hub the question is if this would have been quote unquote a normal mardi gras would we have still seen how would the king cake sales have been different would we have seen more would we have seen less fortunately for us the one constant that remains even if everything else is taken away is And people, have to eat, and people are gonna do everything they can to be able to celebrate the holiday and to grab any little thing. And fortunately, fortunately for us, it's cake cake. But I think that with the house floats and the decorations and just the incredible way that the city is coming together and finding right. a way to capture right. that spirit of carnival, I think that we're gonna see a paradigm shift going forward. You know, people have invested all, all the, the, the time and money into creating their houses. And I think that's gonna be even bigger and better next year. And the great thing about it, and I've said that for the last decade and a half since Katrina, Mardi Gras has really been a thing that each one of us can play a role in making it happen. And that's so much more true now with just being able to just throw some decorations on your home and be a part of it and be able to capture that essence. And I think that we're gonna see more and more of that.
0: Yeah. So well, for King cup I- the, the way I describe it is that we we probably better than almost anybody know how to celebrate our way out of a disaster. Right. I mean, you know, I, 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 I say all the time that the 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 moment for me that was so important right after Katrina was the first Halloween parade in down Decatur Street and people walking down in their blue tarp costumes and their uh, wrapped up refrigerator costumes. And I said, whoa, we're gonna make it. We're gonna be all right. This is, you know, we can can laugh at this mess um, and we're gonna go forward. And and with this, when I first heard house floats, I said, oh my God, only in New Orleans could we come up with something so creative and celebratory out of a a pandemic disaster. And then we get the floats and the oaks and I said, what? you know, this is it. We, we are just a very special place. And we have our difficulties and struggles and uh, threats. We are definitely threatened by all kinds of environmental stuff and sociological stuff and what have you. But somehow we figure out how to make it all work. And, and you guys are the perfect example of the kind of people who figure out how to do that. I can't thank you as a citizen enough. I really, that's from the heart. I just think exactly. it's so important, uh, the kinds of things that you're doing. And I, I agree with you, Will, that um, it's, a, it's it's game-changing for Mardi Gras in the future, for Carnival in the future. And we'll 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 be on the lookout for all kinds of developments, I'm sure. Yeah, you look at in heaven, closing... I think that 2006. There was that one day when I think they had five
2: parades back-to-back, and there weren't a whole lot of bands, and there weren't a whole lot of marching groups. But there were the parades and there was the spirit and there was the the saying of, okay, it's back, it's here. We are going to may have that determination to keep the essence of New Orleans alive. And I think that particular day during, during the 2016 even really captures that.
0: You know, I have to recall also my absolute most favorite Mardi Gras of all, which was the police strike year when we didn't have parades again. And you just wandered around the French quarter, you went from house to house. I happened to stumble into a group of people. Uh, you must know Oli Sasson, right, Brian? Do you know him? No. Yeah, Will. So oh, he's no, no, director, the, the right? director, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, at the time he was probably in his upper 20s or lower 30s, and I, I was probably in my upper 30s or something like that and um you know somehow i just kind of latched on to his crowd and i've i've been friends with them ever since i had the most glorious day hanging out with them meeting their whole group and um, that's to me that's what mardi gras is about it yeah, really is out in the streets meeting people dealing with people in a in a in a totally different way from the way we do on a daily basis and um what I love about New Orleans, is I think hey. Phil Harris, you're too young to know who Phil Harris is, but he was a friend of my father's when he used to say, he had a song, and that's what I love about this house. And so <laughs> it's about New Orleans. <laughs> thank you guys so much. Any closing words? Anything I forgot to ask you?
3: No, thank you, uh, Jane, for doing this.
0: Well, um, Yeah,
3: again. thank you.
2: It's great to be here, we appreciate that. It's great, to, I, I, I wanna thank Brian for, for letting us hang out here at the theater. Hopefully next season we're back here with uh, us fully operating and the theater
0: up fully operating. We're hoping yeah. to make that happen.
3: We King Cakes in the me, Auditorium. Um,
0: websites, guys. <laughs> Give me websites. Again, websites.
3: Uh, broadside, NOLA, and uh, the Broad Theater. And KingKacub. well, com.
0: Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll be back. I'll, unfortunately, as, as a couple of girls I saw there with boxes that they loaded up on their arms and left, and I said, wait, what kind of a party are you having? We're not having a party. We just like to eat. <laughs> okay. got it. <laughs> Bye y'all. All
3: right. Take care. Bye.
0: Take care. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Jean Nathan for Crosstown Conversations on WBOK, what people are talking about.